0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Our Thanksgiving tables may be a lot smaller this year, but they can still nourish our communities.
1: While the concept of sustainability might be very complicated, the action of it is very simple, and that is simply of being a good neighbor. When we look out for each other, we look out for the whole. And that's why I love Thanksgiving so much as a holiday is... It begs us to consider our neighbors. And through food, we do that with such love and deliciousness.
0: Also, some tips for growing a native fruit few people are familiar with, the pawpaw.
2: It's a delicious eating experience, prized by the Native Americans. Of course, this was a principal food source all up and down the East Coast. Great flower, great fruit, nice habit, and great fall color. So if you can grow one of these in your yard, I highly recommend it. That and more this week on Living on Earth... Stick around.
0: From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Just as President Trump's denial of the science of COVID-19 is amplifying its deadly course, his denial of the science of climate change is speeding up the world's rush into deadly climate disruption. All that will make for heavy lifting by the incoming Biden-Harris administration as it will soon try to reverse and realign climate and environmental policies to respect the truth of science. Halting or reducing the exploitation of public lands to avoid adding more global warming gases to the atmosphere is a task the simple math of climate disruption demands. A key crucible to forge policy with scientific truth is the law. And joining us now to look at some legal tools for the Biden team to renew and boost federal climate protection efforts is Pat Parento of Vermont Law School. Pat, welcome back to Living on Earth. Hey, Steve, good to be back. Now, on the scale of importance... How big a deal is it, this protection of public lands when it comes to protecting the climate?
3: You know, everything is important and no one thing is enough. So the protection of these public lands, not only from the standpoint of eliminating oil and gas development, but just protecting the integrity of these landscapes, these ecosystems that are already under tremendous stress from climate change is important. So it's doing two things. It's reducing our use and reliance on fossil fuels and bringing these alternative fuels and technologies online faster. And it's also preserving the resilience, as we call it, of the landscape to deal with things like catastrophic wildfires and drought and the release of pests, organisms as a result of the warming of the temperature and all kinds of conditions that are changing in response to these global changes in climate change. So there's Lots of reasons why preserving our public lands as stores of carbon, as ecosystems to support species of plants and animals that are under tremendous stress, these are the things that we have to start thinking about and evaluating.
0: One of the budget reconciliations that was passed during the Trump administration allowed essentially drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Sounds like Mr. Trump is maybe trying to move forward with that before he leaves office. What are the odds there?
3: Yeah, so that's another one where the federal government and the president has the authority to reverse that decision. If leases had been issued already, that would be a different situation. My understanding is they haven't actually awarded any leases. When that happens, it gets more complicated because now people that have paid good money for the leases are going to argue, you're taking a property right of ours. We purchased the right to develop these resources. You can't simply take it away. So it may be that we're really close to that situation where the equities, as we call them, will shift in favor of the oil companies. But if he hasn't actually awarded leases, they can stop that program. What
0: now will happen with the pipelines? We have Keystone XL. We have Dakota Access. Been a lot of litigation and concern about that. Biden administration has promised to stop a Keystone XL. What's likely to happen now?
3: I think he might stop Keystone. Dakota Access is a more difficult one because it's complete and and the oil is flowing. So that's a tougher one to completely stop. But Keystone XL, once again, he can do the reverse of what Trump did. Obama had blocked Keystone. Trump issued a permit to allow it. Biden can come in and do the same thing. This is a presidential permit to allow bringing this oil into the United States from Canada. The courts have said that's completely up to the president. So if President Biden says, no, you can't bring oil from Canada's tar sands in Alberta into the United States, that's it. You can't do it. The Keystone Pipeline also crosses a lot of federal land. And that's another authority the president has to say, I'm not going to allow rights of way across federal land for this pipeline. I think the Keystone Pipeline is one that Biden is very likely to do, to spike, to stop it. He's going to get some heat for that from the labor unions, because, of course, building pipelines creates a lot of jobs, at least in the short run. So he'll have to take some political heat for that and probably promise to replace those jobs with some other job growth programs he has in mind. But if he wants to really send a powerful signal, not just to the environmental community, but really to the world, that there's a new administration in power with a firm commitment to doing something about climate change, That's the one thing that I think would do it.
0: The Trump administration rolled back on the scale of 100 environmental rules, and we don't have time to talk about all of those today, Pat. But what are some of the things that the Biden administration could do to reverse some of those rules right away? And what are the things that might take a bit longer?
3: Right. So Biden has the authority to reverse all the executive orders that Trump issued with a stroke of a pen, He has the authority to direct his cabinet officers to reverse policies that have been adopted by the Trump administration. That can be done very quickly. The thing that's going to take longer is reversing the rules. And of course, Trump rolled back a whole number of very critical rules, including the Clean Power Plan, the fuel economy rules, the methane gas regulations. And right on down the line, as you said, over 100 of these rules and policies. For rules, Biden is gonna have to go through the same steps that Trump did to create the rules. So he's gotta go back through the rulemaking process, he's gotta provide public notice, opportunity for public comment, he's gotta build a record to explain why he's reversing what Trump had done in a way that Trump didn't do very well, and Trump lost a lot of these cases in court. The Biden administration is gonna have to be more careful And it's also going to have to keep its eye on this new Supreme Court with this very strong six to three conservative majority, because in the end, some of these really big rules like greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, they're going to have to get five votes on the Supreme Court to be upheld. So that's a new dynamic. And Trump didn't face that. But Biden will definitely have to take account of the fact that he may not have the support of the federal courts, which have been packed with Trump appointees. That's a new challenge for this administration. I think it's one they can handle, but they're going to have to do so very carefully.
0: How important is the clock here? Some might say that the Clean Power Plan rulemaking took too much time and was too close to the end to the Obama administration to avoid getting tangled up in the courts. In other words, if Mr. Biden wants to make these changes, how soon does he have to jump on them?
3: You know what, I think they're jumping on it right now. I know many of the people on the Biden transition team for EPA, including people like Joe Goffman, who was one of the authors of the Clean Power Plan and many more. So I think Biden's team, day one, will already be poised to start the work that's needed to reverse the Trump administration's legacy, if you will. So I think we're gonna see a fairly brisk approach from the Biden administration with really competent people carrying out these jobs. And I think they're going to have a much better track record in court going forward.
0: Pat Parentos, a law professor at the Vermont Law School. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Pat.
3: Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Steve.
0: Well, let's take a look beyond the headlines now with our usual guide. That's Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter. How you doing? What's going on? Well, hi, Steve. We've heard a lot justifiably
4: about the tragedies of COVID-19. Quarter of a million human beings killed in this country by the pandemic with warnings that the worst could be yet to come. Here's one more little thing that you probably haven't heard. COVID could be a risk if transferred from human beings to marine mammals.
0: Huh? So how would that happen?
4: It would happen through uh, sewage, untreated sewage, which um, is still the rule in so many parts of the world. It could contain the virus. It can live up to 25 days and uh, offer some pathways to be transferred in the water to animals like beluga whales, sea otters, other whale species, dolphin species, seals, and more.
0: And of course, the marine mammals are in so much trouble already. Um, What else do you have this week?
4: There's a common herbicide, actually the second most common used in this country. Atrazine is used on all sorts of things from golf courses to Christmas tree farms to dozens and dozens of different crops, notably corn, a local produce like tomatoes, and we are told by the EPA, which just renewed atrazine to be used for another 15 years, that in spite of that fact, atrazine could cause harm to as many as a thousand already threatened and endangered plant and animal species.
0: Well, I'm scratching my head on this one, Peter, because atrazine's been linked to everything from breast cancer, prostate cancer, birth defects, neurological problems in in people and such. It's pretty bad for humans, and yet it's been approved for another 15 years, huh?
4: Welcome to the Donald Trump era EPA, where industrial interests come ahead of environmental protection, even in the Environmental Protection Agency.
0: Of course, atrazine is horrible for wildlife as well.
4: There's uh, some evidence that atrazine has been responsible for chemically castrating some frog species. There are so many other species that could be at risk, not just from direct application of atrazine to food, but spray drift from atrazine uh, sites to places nearby, and of course, water pollution. Atrazine is a major factor in pollution of the entire Mississippi River system. There are so many different ways that this ubiquitous chemical is potentially harming our lives and the environment around us.
0: Okay, Peter, I'm ready for some better news. Maybe if we look back in history, we'll find something to cheer us up. How
4: about a birthday party that's near and dear to my heart? My old boss, Ted Turner, Turns 82 years old. He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, not in the South, on November 19th, 1938. Ted, of course, founded CNN and is responsible for so many things in which he was way ahead of his time.
0: And what? He's not only the father of CNN, but also Captain Planet. He would come to the Society of Environmental Journalists meeting. I like that.
4: He took all sorts of journalism very seriously, but he gave a big boost to covering the environment. Ted was a man way ahead of his time on uh, climate change, on habitat, on endangered species, and on all manner of environmental issues.
0: So let's have the Ted Turner party, huh? Absolutely. Thanks. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk
4: to you soon. Happy birthday, Ted.
0: And happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And there's more in these stories on the Living on Earth website, which is loe.org. Coming up, the delicious pawpaw fruit some Native American traditions of giving thanks. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. In many parts of North America, it's well past harvest time, but not for the pawpaw. The pawpaw is a native fruit in the eastern U.S. that ripens in the late fall. Pawpaws were a delicious food source for Native Americans, as well as for people escaping from slavery on the journey north to freedom. And there are still some pawpaw patches feeding folks today, though you can't find pawpaws in grocery stores. Last spring, when Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom spoke with Michael Weisson, Former host of the Victory Garden on PBS about gardening amid the coronavirus, Michael offered to dig up a few of his pawpaws for Bobby to try growing at home. She recently picked up some saplings from Michael and has our story.
2: Here hear your pawpaws, which we'll pull out in just a minute.
5: Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. As you can see, how the how much smaller the leaves are uh, compared to what we're going to be looking at. Um, that reduction is typical of plants that don't like to be transplanted. So, by next year, they should have leaves of regular size.
5: And what's regular size?
2: Well, come on down, I'll show you.
5: All right. Welcome
2: to my pawpaw grove. So, in front of us is the tree. It's probably now about 30 feet tall and 15 feet wide. These are big, long lanceate leaves, which simply mean uh, shaped like a, a sword, long sword shaped leaves about seven, eight inches long, three inches wide. And then as you go up, you see that they're starting to change color and that they're a brilliant, brilliant yellow, which is one of the great uh, fall features of this tree. And there, hanging right in front of us, are the pawpaws. (laughs) So, is that what you expected?
5: I've seen pictures, okay. so I wasn't a complete novice. I've never had one. I've never seen one in the flesh, so to speak. But, um, no, I thought that they would be maybe bigger or greener or well, something.
2: it looks something like a green potato, wouldn't you say?
5: Yeah, it's a green potato. There this one's sort of stuck together like a snowman or something. Well, yeah,
2: exactly. They come, they come sometimes combined. Either they're big, long sort of cylinders or they're, they're various sort of sets of circles. And sometimes they're just a single set of circles. So the fruit is very variable. Um, another reason why they're not in commercial production, um, because they're very variable. So it would be very hard to ship them. They're also, um, here you can feel one, they're also quite soft,
5: yeah, it's like a ripe avocado. That exactly. That's
2: how you know they're ripe. Um, you take them, when they when you push them in and they dance slightly with your thumb, just like an avocado, then they're ready to go. Um, if they fall off the tree, they have a tendency to get bruised. And uh, again, that's why they're not really potentially shippable.
5: They're pretty small, too. I mean, this one, I don't know, a quarter of a pound or something?
2: Oh, yeah, um, certainly less than a pound, about four inches long, three inches long, something like that. See, but what's interesting about this is that these trees very unusually form thickets, and these roots come from underground. So this, for instance, this four, five, six foot tree here right next to it is is from an underground growth. And they're all tied via underground runners. And so when you try to go dig one up, you sever the runner, which means the plant is really unhappy. So this again makes for very poor commercial production, which is why you don't see these in local nurseries.
5: Now, do they only reproduce by sending out runners? Or can you also take a seed and grow it and get a pawpaw? Or is it going to be more like an apple where you don't know what you're going to get?
2: Oh, you're going to see the seeds in a minute. Um, You can definitely plant the seeds. And presumably, that's how this was grown. And that would actually be an easier way to propagate than these cuttings because then, of course, it would form the root within the pot and it would just be integral, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to being split up like this. The flowers are really interesting, too. They're beautiful, long purple, about inch and a half flowers of a a dark sort of vermilion purple color. And interestingly, they have very little smell or a very unpleasant smell, depending on your nose. And they're propagated by flies and not by bees. They bloom very early before the bees are active. And so there's a whole group of these plants that are propagated by flies and other alternative pollinators. And um, the pawpaw is one of them.
5: Now. My understanding of pawpaws, I was under the impression that they grow really well in the south, like the mid-Atlantic region, and New England was sort of pushing the envelope for pawpaws, but yours looks pretty good here. Um, Are they growing better in this region now, or is this typically where you would expect to find them?
2: We are at the northern edge of the range, Um, so how much further north they will go, I don't know. You're right, they're very well known down in the middle Atlantic and southeastern United States. However, with the climate change issue... Things are moving north, so they already have predicted that this zone, where we are now, 6B, will be closer to 7B within 30 years.
5: Well, I'm in uh, zone 5.
2: The nice thing about a pawpaw, at least these pawpaws, is that they're free, right? (laughs) So take them home, plant it. If it dies, try the seeds. If it doesn't work, you know, you're welcome back here anytime to eat the pawpaws.
5: I'll turn up on your doorstep. Here I am.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Anytime.
5: Thank you. Well, can we try them? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome.
2: So here we are outside in the rain because of our COVID precautions, trying pawpaws, this will be a first. (laughs)
5: <laughs> well, it's a first for me on every score. I've never had one.
2: So. I'm just going to cut this open and then split it apart. And it's, you can see it's like a banana. Oh, yeah. So at this point, I'm going to give you a spoon. And you're, these are the big black seeds. And you just take the seeds out and then scoop it out like you would um, custard.
5: It's so good. Not what I expected. Everybody says banana and mango. And it's got like the texture of banana maybe, but
2: I think it's more like vanilla custard. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I gotta try another one. Mmm, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> my kids are gonna love this.
2: It's a delicious eating experience. Prized by the Native Americans, of course, this was a principal food source all up and down the East Coast. A beautiful tree, great flower, great fruit, nice habit, and great fall color. So if you can grow one of these in your yard, I highly recommend it.
5: And the unusual thing, too, about them, I mean, they taste like a like a tropical fruit almost here in New England, which is so unusual. But also, I mean, we're almost into November now, and you're just now harvesting. these. That's pretty unusual. I mean, even apples are sort of on their way out at this point.
2: Yeah, my apples are done. I think because they have originated from the south, they are used to a longer growing season. As you can see around us, most of the trees have lost their leaves, but the pawpaw is still doing its thing.
5: Great. Well, thank you so much. I'm really uh, so grateful for your time and for the pawpaws, and I can't wait to try them.
2: Well, and can't wait to have your family try them. You like them already.
5: Well, I mean, I can't wait to try to grow them.
2: Ah, yes. Well, we'll see. Report back, and I want 10%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bobby.
5: Thank you. Oh, this is super fun.
0: That's Living on Earth's Bobby Vascom, speaking with landscape designer and former host of the Victory Garden, Michael Weissan. Thanksgiving is one holiday that most Americans feel free to celebrate. No matter what religious or cultural background we come from, many of us, in a normal year at least, will gather with friends and family on the fourth Thursday of November to feast on the foods of the harvest season. This year, of course, is different, but the spirit of gratitude is still alive during the pandemic. But Thanksgiving is rather more complicated for the people at the center of the Thanksgiving story Native Americans. There are nearly 600 Native American tribal nations in the U.S. today, each with their own distinct traditions and culture. And to get some insight into some Thanksgiving traditions of the Nolhegan-Apenaki tribe of Vermont and upstate New York, we reached out to storyteller and tribal elder Joe Bruchak. Joe, welcome back to Living on Earth. Happy to be here. So, Joe, you can tell us, what's your feeling generally about the Thanksgiving holiday? I would describe it
6: as ambivalent. It was always very important when I was a kid growing up, but when I look at it from the viewpoint of Native people, especially here in the Northeast, there is a lot of cultural and historical baggage connected to it that makes uh, some Native people describe it not as a day of Thanksgiving, but a day of mourning. Because of several things, of course, the dispossession of Native people that happened after that supposed first Thanksgiving, a number of Native tribal nations of the Northeast were either wiped out or driven from their homelands by the very European people who had originally been helped by them to survive in this new land.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're taught in school that Thanksgiving is this holiday framed around the early white settlers, the folks that came to Plymouth, Massachusetts, uh, inviting Native Americans to feast as a way of thanking them for their help and learning how to survive in the new world. So, how was the holiday taught in your family, in your community, as you grew up, and and how true does that narrative ring to you today? Well,
6: I think the complexity of it is is varied. For example, the idea of Thanksgiving as a national holiday was first proposed, or I should say proclaimed, by Abraham Lincoln after the Battle of Gettysburg to celebrate a great victory for the Union. Further, in New England, they say the first Thanksgiving that was declared for the Massachusetts colony by John Winthrop, the governor, was after the destruction and the driving out of the Pequot Nation. So you can see how there'd be some complexity there.
0: Indeed. And of course, It's this time of year that school kids have been learning about Thanksgiving, and they've maybe made even pilgrim hats and feather headdresses. How do you feel about this way of teaching that part of American history? Well,
6: ironically, uh, the pilgrim hats they make are not the hats that the pilgrims wore. Okay. And and the headdresses they put on are little circles of paper with uh, feathers sticking up. A lot of Native people feel that's really not respectful of the way that we dressed and it becomes a a kind of parody because as you know so-called ethnic minorities another term i don't particularly like find themselves often parodied or stereotyped in majority culture this is an example of i think a kind of stereotyping that i'd rather not see
0: so there are a lot of things about the holiday that seem to have changed over the years but uh the foods that generally get set out on the table have remained the same. Of course, there were wild turkeys back then, corn was grown, squash. To what degree are these types of foods still a part of some Native American cultures?
6: Sure thing. One of the uh, favorite dishes of uh, Northeastern Native people is called succotash, which is a mixture of corn, beans, and squash who are called the three sisters of life because they provide and have always provided so much support for our our people. And of course, corn and beans and squash are three of the gifts of Native people to the world. Whereas Europeans tended to deal in taming animals and making cows and pigs and horses, none of which were here, part of their life. In the North American and South American continents, there were incredible agronomists people who did plant breeding and created dozens, in fact, hundreds of varieties of corn and beans and squash.
0: By the way, back in those days in the Plymouth area at the coast, what we now call Cape Cod Bay, I imagine there were plenty of lobsters. How did that feed into the the menu, the cuisine of Native Americans and the settlers at that time, do you think?
6: Without a doubt, seafood was very important. Fish, crustaceans such as the lobster, and other creatures from the sea were a very integral part of the diet. In fact, there's some question whether or not there actually was turkey at that first Thanksgiving. But there, <laughs> there certainly <laughs> was seafood. There certainly were those vegetables I've mentioned. And I'm sure they also brought in deer because venison was a staple for the people at the time. Hey, um, tell me about your own family and friends. How do you celebrate Thanksgiving, if at all? Actually, we do. We see it as an opportunity to bring people together, to share food. And I should point out that within our traditions here in the Northeast, one of the most important things we start with is giving thanks. It's not the idea of Thanksgiving, but the way it's been framed within American culture that is difficult for Native people. And these Thanksgiving celebrations took place not just at the harvest time in November, But when the maple trees first gave their sap to make maple syrup, when various other plants and harvesting of various types was able to be part of the culture. So that idea of harvesting and sharing and giving thanks is very deeply ingrained in our traditions, and it's certainly very much a part of my family. Every meal we eat, we always begin with a thanksgiving prayer. And what is that prayer? We give thanks to the Creator for the bounty that we've been given. We give thanks to our families for their health and their good well-being. We give thanks to each other and to the land that sustains us. And, in fact, if you look among our friends slightly to the west, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois nations, they say that the Thanksgiving address, a very formal enumeration of all the gifts of life, from the earth to the plants, the animals, the winds... The waters, the sun, the moon, the stars, the creator. All of these things must be thanked
0: formally before any important occasion can begin. Talking to you, Joe, I realized I should be giving thanks for maple syrup and maple candy. I, for whatever reason, it escaped me that there's a strong Native American connection to this. Mm-hmm. And I was
6: told many years ago by De La Santa, Ellis Papano, the head clan mother the Onondaga um, eel clan, that. When we get that first maple sap, it is a medicine given us by the creator that if we drink that sap straight from the tree, our bodies are going to be healed from the wounds and the troubles of winter, which I think is a beautiful way to look at it.
0: And then traditionally, to what extent uh, do you folks uh, start to boil it down and make it into syrup? And then, of course, the candy it can become.
6: Well, I could describe to some detail the traditional native way of doing it. You cut a sort of a V in the tree. You put a little hollow piece of shumac there and collect it in a bark basket, which is watertight. And then you would pour it into a dugout canoe. And by heating stones separately and dropping those red hot stones into the canoe full of sap, you'd boil it down and result in maple syrup, which then if it was cooked further over a pot, You could turn into candy. In fact, one of the special treats of the wintertime would be to take very hot maple syrup and pour it on the snow, which makes immediately a little kind of candy that you can eat,
0: kind of like a snow cone. And then you wind up with a bunch of sticky canoes?
6: Yeah, you would, I guess, end up with a sticky canoe, (laughs) although then you don't fall out as easily. Joke, joke.
0: (laughs) Well, Joe Bruchak, you are an author and a storyteller by trade. I wonder if you have a short story about Thanksgiving or or gratitude that you would care to share with us at this moment.
6: I think what I'd like to share, in fact, I know what I'd like to share is something by Tom Porter, who is an elder of the Mohawk Nation, a truly wise person. Tom said that when the world was first created, our creator told human beings, there is one thing you must do before all others. It is a simple thing give thanks. Give thanks before you drink water. Give thanks to your friends for the things they do for you. Give thanks to all of creation and all that you meet. Well, what happened then is that people became forgetful. They stopped giving thanks. And as a result, everything began to go wrong around them. And that is when the Creator sent another messenger, and this messenger brought various ceremonies that could be done to remind us of the importance of giving thanks. That is a very simple story, but one I think that is still true to us today. If we forget to give thanks and be grateful, indeed, everything
0: begins to go wrong. Joe Bruchak is an author, storyteller, and elder of the Nilhegan Abenaki tribe of Vermont and upstate New York. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, Thank you so much. Coming up with the most unusual stuffing for your Thanksgiving table, made with oysters.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.
0: Join the Living on Earth book club, We're hosting a free virtual panel featuring some of the voices behind the new anthology, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. We'll be chatting live with climate leaders including Katherine Wilkinson, Colette Pichon-Battle, Janie Bavishi, and Suzanne Moser. That's Thursday, December 3rd at 6 p.m. Eastern. Learn more on the Living on Earth website at LOE.org and click Events at the top of the page. See you then. In the 19th century, oysters were a popular food item in the U.S., especially with the advent of commercial food canning. And by 1900, Americans were gobbling down some 160 million pounds of oysters a year. But overconsumption, sanitation concerns about raw oysters, and the huge expansion of the beef and pork business that the railroads made possible led to the oysters' decline. Farmed correctly, oysters can be sustainable – and their reefs protect coastal areas. So in recent years, the popularity of local foods has spawned new oyster farmers, farmers that were hit hard this year with a drop in demand during the COVID crisis. Not everybody loves them, of course, but oysters can be eaten in many ways beyond the half-shell. And celebrity chef Barton Seaver joins us now from his kitchen near the harbor of South Freeport, Maine, to show how oysters can even lend flavor to Thanksgiving stuffing. Barton, welcome back to Living on Earth.
1: It's so nice to be back with you, friend.
0: So tell me, why have the oyster farmers and fishermen been hit so hard by COVID-19?
1: Oysters are, well, they're so important to the restaurant industry, and that's where so many of us go to get them. By some anecdotal accounts, in March, April, May, large oyster dealers around the country I've talked to lost 98% of their business who were selling into restaurants some of that has come back massachusetts has some hard data around about 60 to 70 percent of their oysters landed that business was lost so restaurants were the conduit they were the marketplace for oyster farmers and for wild uh, to sell their product
0: yet yeah, where i live in southern new hampshire is near the great bay which among the rivers coming into it is one called the oyster river And I noticed that there were folks who actually
1: had set up stands along the side of the road to sell oysters individually to people. Yeah. Well, that's been one of the great success stories. And that's sort of the inherent nature of oyster farming is that these are small businessmen and women who are running a farm. And they are entrepreneurs and they were able to pivot quite quickly And as in COVID, we turned our attentions anew to local food systems. Oysters are a prominent part of that for those of us on the coast. There is no food that is of place as much as our oysters, clams, mussels. And so that that connectivity is there in the taste of place. And it was really heartening to see those small farmers finding those pathways and for consumers to, to desire them and support them.
0: Now, we know from history that Native Americans brought shellfish to the Pilgrims that came here to the New England area in the 1600s. To what extent do you think oysters and and shellfish should regain a place at the Thanksgiving table?
1: Well, oysters were one of the foundational foods of this country and long before the white man set foot on this continent, oysters were serving and sustaining native populations for eons. Uh, Hey, are you hungry? Cool. Wait for low tide. (laughs) There's a pretty good menu out there. And in the first years of this country, and really through the early 1900s, oysters played a significant part of our diet. In New York City, around the turn of the 20th century, New Yorkers were eating about seven pounds of oysters per person per year. But through decimation of local oyster populations in the wild throughout the United States and our coastlines, we lost access to oysters, as well as railroads created access to beef. And revolutions in agriculture made animal products cheaper, more accessible, more available. And sort of we lost our way as a seafaring nation as we turned towards another ocean that rippled with amber waves of grain instead uh, instead of the tempestuous waves of the Atlantic.
0: Now, Barton, I know you're a huge fan of oysters but not just for their taste. Tell me why you think they're so important ecologically.
1: Oysters, amongst other shellfish, are you know, what was known as a, a keystone species. They're fundamental to the health of the ecosystems in which they are prevalent. They provide water quality. They provide habitat for countless other species. They are the bedrock upon which ecosystems' health and resiliency relies and in the absence of wild oysters because we've decimated them through overfishing through disease etc uh habitat loss oyster farming has stepped into the role of providing those ecosystem services those vital services and it was really oyster farming clams and mussels scallop farming as well That really turned my attention as a chef away from sort of the guilty narrative of sustainability being, hey, how can we reduce the negative impacts we're having to thinking about oysters as regenerative, as our opportunity to improve ecosystems through our diet to the point where oysters, clams, mussels are are the only foods that I recommend outright overconsumption of. Because every oyster you eat encourages an oyster farmer, a small businessman or woman, to plant many more, to augment and expand upon those ecosystem services provided by them. And uh, in that way, I think it's our patriotic duty to eat as many farm-raised shellfish as we can.
0: In fact, you know, as the storms pick up with climate disruption, oyster reefs are a great way to slow down uh, the storm surge, huh?
1: Absolutely. We've seen this with Katrina. We saw this with Superstorm Sandy, that these vulnerable civic centers are made more vulnerable by the lack of those natural oyster reefs that naturally stopped those storm surges. And there's some really fascinating work going on around rebuilding reefs through commerce, which... Hey, I mean, environmentalism and social good on the half shell with a splash of Texas Pete and a six pack of beer over there chilling. Woo-woo! I mean, <laughs> hey, you know, that's the kind of story that we need. And that's the kind of civic participation that is not a hard sell.
0: No, no, indeed. Already my mouth is watering. Hey, There's a project going on that the Nature Conservancy is a big part of. They're going out and they're buying up uh, oysters that are otherwise going unsold to the restaurants during this pandemic to help farmers who need to have a source of, of, of cash. And they're using those oysters to restore more shellfish reefs. Why is it important to have oysters in local communities? What is it about oyster farming that is so sustainable for localities?
1: Well, we are an agrarian nation. We really get the patterned rows of corn leading the eye off in undulating hills towards autumn splendor setting sun, the the white farmhouse picket fence, red barn color fading. I mean, you know, this is America, the very thread by which our fabric is woven. But we look out upon the water and sort of gaze wistfully at the wine dark sea and, and think as though a fishery or a fish farm happens somewhere other somewhere else. And I think it's so important that when we think about aquaculture, when we think about fisheries, yeah, we stand on that dock, but we we turn around and we look at the quality of public education and the the modest home standing proudly on the hillside leading to the sea. We, we look at the opportunity for a daughter to follow in five generations of bootsteps to take helm of that boat and live and thrive in her community. And that is what oyster farming represents. In that truly American story, we see ourselves reflected and we see our own values delivered to us on the half-shell. Right here in my village, there's a young woman named Emily, Emily's Oysters. She grew up here and she went to school out in Puget Sound and she was looking for something to do. And, you know, a classic case of the brain drain of small rural communities. But oyster farming caught her heart you know, it it brought her back to her place. And now she's farming 50, 60, 70,000 oysters out in the waters that I can see from my house pretty much. And she's selling at local farmers markets. and Like that to me is the, the quintessential story of success and of human sustainability acting in concert with our ecosystems. I mean, hey, that we can put that narrative so concisely on our Thanksgiving table, celebrating not only our past, but evangelizing and enabling the next generation of ocean stewards all through one delicious bite at a time, makes you feel good. Indeed. You have some delicious recipes, Barton, on your website.
0: There's, oh, the oyster risotto... The broiled oysters Rockefeller. And I believe you're going to show us how to make an oyster stuffing, being that we're close to Thanksgiving, huh? Yeah. Now, I must say, I never knew the stuffing on my Thanksgiving table could feature shellfish.
1: Right. You know, and and it's one of those uh, dishes that I really like about oysters. Oysters can be, I wouldn't say polarizing, but uh, intimidating. I mean, it is the only food, Steve, that we eat regularly that comes to us inside of a rock.
0: Yeah. How do you open the thing? You gave me a lesson on how to do this a few years back. But the next time I tried it, I have to say I wasn't
1: terribly successful. I mean, yeah, this this animal's inside of a rock. Right. And then take this culinary advice on how to open it. Well, Steve, grasp the oyster in the left hand, take a pointy knife, and shove it towards your hand with full force. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it's like, it, it's yeah. it's, a, it's no. kind of against all of our intuition and best learning. This food comes comes inside of a rock, and we have to point a knife towards our hand to get it. However, it becomes this meditative skill. And, and yes, it takes practice, it takes time, but it is also this very sort of zen Thing and I've, I've shucked probably over a hundred thousand oysters in my life. You know, I'm, I'm well over Malcolm Gladwell's uh, you know threshold there for expertise. But there's something so beautiful about that connectivity. When we do open it, you protect yourself either with a glove or with towels, etc. And when you pop that open, you are seeing there in front of you this this still living creature that offers us this very visceral sensory opportunity to experience the unseemly circus of life aquatic that is the microscopic ocean from which it eats. I mean, it's just this, wow. Hey, yeah, it's, it's worth the effort, you know, ultimately. But the Thanksgiving stuffing is something that I love because it doesn't require us to sort of put forth this pristine oyster. I mean, hey, your oysters are going to get cooked down with butter and celery, sage, onion, chunks of brioche or uh, you know whole wheat bread, all simmered down together in a chicken broth or water, and seasoned with the liqueur of the oyster, that salt fragrant glory coming through. shove that under your turkey, roast it off the bottom of it gets a little bit crisp. The oysters add that that really just floral aroma to the turkey it's i mean. Hey, do I have your attention yet? You uh, I mean, am I hungry? Um, yeah. <laughs> am, I, am I bumming
0: that this is one of these COVID uh, type of interviews where we're in different places and talking to each other electronically because I can't be in your kitchen and consume this? Yeah. Still, I can almost smell it, as a matter of fact, even as you describe it. We're going to post on the Living on Earth website, that's LOE.org, uh, some video of Barton preparing his, his oyster stuffing. So now is the moment, uh, Barton, where uh, we'd love to see you do that. All right. Well,
1: it's not complicated. You start off with butter because, well, because butter... And stuffing is really one of the easiest things, and what I what I love so much about it is that scent of sage, which is so autumnal and just sort of celebratory in its in its nature and flavor and aroma to me. And uh, so I always look forward to the foods and the dishes that uh, incorporate that. And and none I think more viscerally to the American experience than stuffing. Very simple recipe of just sautéing or base aromatics. I've got. Couple stalks of celery uh, and onion that I've diced up, uh, sautéing that in butter, and I'm just going to keep that on until it wilts, which will be a few minutes here. And then I've got some of Emily's oysters who who stopped by this morning at the house on her way to the market up in Bath, where you can find her. But I've got the the liquor and the oysters perfectly shucked in there. All that flavor, that salt fragrant glory of the of the liquor. Let's see what else I got some brioche breadcrumbs that I just cut into pieces, toasted them off in the toaster oven until they were nice and crunchy. So, Mm -hmm. and here you go. Here come the sounds of the season. You've got uh, the butter starting to waft up into the room. I mean, this uh, this is at least what
0: I live for. So not too hot there, just sort of lightly sauteing it, huh?
1: Yeah, you don't want to add color to it necessarily. You don't want to change the flavor of the onion, the celery, just so much as as wilt it, integrate it into the dish. So as I was talking about the sage, as it begins to simmer in that butter, Mm. I guarantee my wife is going to walk down in T-minus three minutes here at least and uh, wonder what's going on. (laughs) Also one of the great joys is that this year we've got a 4-year-old son who is just our best friend and he's really starting to get engaged and, and interested in cooking and this will be the first Thanksgiving that he can um, help quote unquote so I, i'm looking forward to that and you know the process of teaching children about food systems is so wonderful and that we get to walk down to the harbor and buy lobsters and mussels clams oysters from the men and women that are are farming them, our harvesting them, is uh, it's just a wonderful thing for him to, to see and it builds in that innate thankfulness, gratitude for the products ultimately that sustain us. And uh, you know, it's hard to explain to a four year old what sustainability is as a concept other than to say, hey kid, this will be here for you when you want to do this with your kid too. So, oyster liqueur. Couple of oysters, Ooh. one for me. Mm. And there you go, ah. you are done. You know you don't need to season it with anything more than the sage. We've already got the, uh, you got all of the, the saltiness, the brininess of those oysters to sort of fill that out. Just turn the heat off and as the continuation heat in the bread, in the the celery begins to cook, you see the, the mantle, those lips of the oysters begin to curl. And I mean, hey Steve, this is gorgeous. This is wonderful. And this is my lunch today. So thanks for the opportunity to make it for you. You know, the thing that I love most about cooking is that to feed someone is an act of love. It is an act of kindness. And that's why I love Thanksgiving so much as a holiday is it begs us to consider our neighbors. And uh, that plays into sustainability narrative too, which is while the idea of the concept of sustainability might be very complicated, the action of it is very simple. And that is simply of being a good neighbor. When we look out for each other, we look out for the whole. And through food, we do that so intimately and with such love and deliciousness. Barton Seaver's
0: latest book is The Joy of Seafood, the all-purpose seafood cookbook with Almost a Thousand Recipes. Thanks,
1: Barton. Thanks for taking the time with us today. Always a pleasure. I look forward to feeding you again in our kitchen sometime soon.
0: To see Barton cooking up his oyster stuffing, go to the Living on Earth webpage, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablo, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Aaron Mock, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Casey Truce, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show, Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. We pause to offer our condolences to intern Leah Jablo and her family and reflect on the life of Cyril Jablo, her grandfather, and one of the quarter million Americans who so far have lost their lives to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.